take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. Hebrews 7, 26 through 28. We're returning to these verses that we looked at last week because we didn't finish last week. And so we're going to look at them again um, and look at it, pick up from where we left off last week. And we, we had four points that came out of these verses, and it all had to do with the nature of the priesthood of Christ, that we saw that Christ is a sufficient high priest. We saw that he was a separated high priest. We began to look that he's a sacrificial high priest, and then finally we see that he's a superior high priest. And so let me read the text for you. We'll briefly cover these points, and then we'll, we'll pick up from where we left off. So beginning in verse 26, this is the word of the Lord. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For as the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord, and may he bless the reading of it. You'll notice that we begin by the sufficiency of Christ as our priest in in verse 26, just by the simple statement that it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, meaning that he is the sufficient high priest, which excludes another high priest or a need for another high priest. It's fitting that he is our high priest, which means he is the only one that accomplished the job. Then we go into the nature of who Christ is in his person and that he's separated. And we see this list of attributes. First, that he's a high priest, which means he's chosen of God. He's set apart by God. He is elect of God. But then we see that not only is he that, but he's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He is separated from us. That is a speaking of Christ's otherness than from us. Christ is holy, Christ is perfect, Christ is righteous. And so this makes him an appropriate and fitting high priest for us. But all of those attributes are pointing to this, that he's separated from us as a high priest. So he's not like the other high priest. Which brings us to our first point this morning, In verse 27, he's a sacrificial high priest. Christ offers himself as the sacrifice. 
So he offers the sacrifice, and in offering the sacrifice, he offers himself. So he's the sacrifice giver, and he is the sacrifice itself. You think of the language of the scripture, John the Baptist sees Christ and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Why did he say that? It is pointing to the fact that he is the sacrifice. So verse 27 says, He has no need like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And this is the result of the the otherness of Christ, that he's holy, that he's separated, that he's exalted above the heavens. He doesn't then have to offer a sacrifice for himself. He can just simply present himself because he is the Lamb of God without spot, without blemish. He doesn't need personal atonement, it says. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. And if you look in the Old Testament, you'll see that this is in fact what the priest had to do. And I know we looked at these verses last week, but it's helpful just to hear them again. In Leviticus 4.3, you don't need to turn there. It says, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull." from the herd, without blemish, to the Lord, for a sin offering. And so the priest had to offer first for himself because he was a sinner. And the idea that this was a daily occurrence really speaks to the daily need of it. And if there's a daily need for it, it means that daily the priest sinned. Now, if you would like to turn to Exodus chapter 29, I want to I point this out to us to see the language of Scripture. Exodus 29 in verse 38. And I want to read this passage, and I want you to notice the language, this, these words of, you shall do this, which is speaking of something that the priest will do. And then I want you to notice the language of God speaking, where God says, I will. So as I read this passage, pay attention to the language where there's instructions of what you shall do as the priest and then it will transition into what God himself will do. Okay? So pay attention to this language with me in verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day regularly. This is speaking of what the priesthood would have to do. Day by day, this is their job. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. So morning and evening, there was continual sacrifices going on for sin. Verse 40, And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour, mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer it with a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. 
So day and night, daily, there is this prescription for giving sacrifices. Why is there this daily giving for sacrifices? Because there's daily sin. But it also indicates that if I'm giving these daily sacrifices for sin, my sin still remains and has not actually been taken away. Otherwise, I wouldn't have to keep giving sacrifices day in, day out, in morning and evening with all of these other things that are supposed to go into it. So it creates a dilemma for us. But God in His mercy, we will see that He still meets the people. We see, beginning in verse 42, that where I will meet with you to speak to you there. God in His mercy says, I will come to you. Verse 43, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified, that is, set apart by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, Aaron also and his sons. I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people and will be their God. Now I want you to notice that through this prescription of evening and in morning and daily offering these sacrifices, that they have to do because they are sinning daily and sin has not been taken care of, God says, I'll consecrate these things. That is, I will make them separate. I will make them holy. I will set them apart. But how often did God have to make those things and the priest and all of the utensils and all of those things in the tabernacle set apart holy daily? Why? Because they in themselves were not holy. They in themselves were not separated. They were just simple materials. Like last week as we spoke of the priest's garments and making the priest's garments holy, the garments were no more holy than the suit I'm wearing now. It's just clothing. God had to make it that way because it in and of itself was not holy. What do we see of Christ? Christ doesn't have to consecrate himself. Christ doesn't have to go through this ritual every single day for sins because he is without sin, because he is holy, he is unstained, he is separated from sinners, he is exalted above the heavens. He himself is holy. They needed to do it daily. You know, it's interesting as you study the time of Moses and somewhat into the time of Joshua, you see that the people were fairly obedient. But in Moses' parting words to the people of Israel, he says to them, you are going to rebel against God. You are going to turn from his ways. Why does Moses say that? Because they weren't actually truly set apart as holy. And this is the difference, what we have to understand between Israel as the nation in the Old Testament and those that are truly saved, is if you are set apart in Christ, you are made holy. You are made a new creation. You are set apart in Christ, with Christ's righteousness, working in and through you. 
We oftentimes compare ourselves to Israel and how they made their mistakes, but what we do in that is a dangerous thing at times. And that is this, is we've been given a new and better covenant by which we are saved and truly set apart with a new heart, new mind, new desires. That wasn't promised in the old covenant. Abraham was saved just as you are by the blood of Christ. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness before the giving of the law. And so as we read these these laws, this was God's prescribed way of worship. And by trusting in God's means, people were saved in that old covenant. But it was only insofar as they were looking to the one that would fulfill the types and the shadows. Because what happens after Moses dies is Israel spirals out of control. You want proof? Just read the book of Judges. And it doesn't get much better when you get to the monarchy of David. You will every now and then find a good king, but not often. It's because they were not all, as a people, made righteous. They were not all, as a people, And when we look to Christ and we see that He is the opposite of those things, that He Himself is holy, that He is Himself separated, it's a foreign idea to us because all that we experience is people that are not holy. All that we experience is people that are not separated as Christ was perfectly separated. And so let us look to Christ as our perfect representative now, what was the nature of this sacrifice? The first thing I want to point out is it was, there's a particular nature to his sacrifice. What it says in the text is he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Now, just zero in on the phrase there, for those of the people. Christ offers a sacrifice not for himself, but he offers a sacrifice for the people. He's offering his sacrifice for someone or some people, a group of people. And so there's a particular nature that we see in Christ offering himself is that there is a particular people that he has in mind in his offering and representing. When the priests of Israel would offer their sacrifice, who was it for? Israel. When Christ offers his sacrifice himself, who is it on behalf of? It is on behalf of his people. Jesus tells us this in John chapter 10 and verse 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He's speaking of giving life. And then he tells us how this life is given. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for who? The sheep. And through this, he contrasts between those that are in his flock and those that are outside of his flock. Christ offers this sacrifice on behalf of his people. He says in 
John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, he says, speaking to to his disciples. So Christ lays down his life, and I, I want you to notice the language that we see in John is that he lays down his life on behalf of people, particularly when we read of the fact that he lays down his life for his friends. He says, someone lays down his life, the word for is on behalf Christ lays down his life, which is he intentionally lays down his life, not for random people, not for potential people, but for his friends, for his sheep. It's speaking of Christ's particular work of love, which means this. If you have trusted in Christ this morning, you never have to question whether Christ gave his life for you. He gave his life for you that you may live, that you may have eternal life. He had you in mind when he laid down his life. It wasn't for the potential that people might believe in him. Christ laid his life down for a particular, for a specific people that he had in mind. That's why we find those words on behalf. It's the little Greek word, huper, and it's one of the most wonderful words in all of Scripture. It's the word on behalf. Let me ask you, are we supposed to notice the special nature of this in the Christian life as a means of helping us? The answer is yes. The language of sacrifice and the words on your behalf is actually something that is very crucial to what we are going to do this afternoon. And that is partaking in the Lord's Supper. And we, we sometimes wonder, who are, the, who are to be the proper recipients of the Lord's Supper? Well, I want you to read the language of instruction and notice the sacrificial language. And I want you to pay close attention to that specific, particular language of a particular work of God on behalf of a people. When Paul gives instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, on behalf of you. So in the same way, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do you realize that every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating the fact that Christ did something on our behalf? Those that have trusted in Christ are the proper recipients of the Lord's table. That's why we say if you, if you haven't trusted in Christ, just pass that cup. And then we call you to trust in Christ. Because when it says it's on your behalf, we have to stay consistent with what Scripture says. Christ says, I lay down my life on behalf of the sheep. 
And so every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we're remembering what it is that Christ has done on our behalf. That is our communion with Christ, our celebration with Christ. That is our fellowship that we have with one another, is that Christ did something on our behalf. And if I haven't trusted in Christ... If you haven't trusted in Christ, you stand outside of that on your behalf. That's why you need to trust in Christ. Because here's the beauty of on our behalf, of what Christ has done and what He has performed. Our sins are given for His righteousness. Our sorrows are given so that we may have His joy. Our suffering is taken upon Him in His humanity, and we are then given His peace. Think about that, the conflict and suffering and the trials that we face in this life. Christ experienced that on our behalf and then says this, I give you my peace. Our forsakenness is exchanged so that He would be forsaken and we would be accepted. He did that on our behalf. He was forsaken on our behalf. Our thirst, our very basic need of life. What does Christ do? On the cross, He says, I thirst so that we no longer have to. And out of Him flows an abundant fountain of water. Our pain is given to Him so that in Him we might be healed. That's what He did on our behalf. Yes, we we have eternal life. Praise the Lord, but what does that mean? Well, it means all of those things, plus innumerable blessings, all of the riches and treasures that we can have in Christ are given to us because of what Christ did on our behalf. Let us never cheapen that particular nature of what Christ did on our behalf. May we live in light of that was already noted. In fact, Paul even says this in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live for him because he died for me. And we may live because He lives in us. That's what He did on our behalf. Not only do we see the particular nature of the sacrifice, but I also want you to notice the voluntary nature of this sacrifice and that we commonly say that Christ was a voluntary, substitutionary atonement. We say that He did this willingly. Christ willingly came and gave Himself. You see that He offered up Himself. That language there of Himself and that word offer, it's the language of placing something on the altar. It says that He has no need like those other priests. So Christ did not have a need to offer Himself on the sacrifice table, on the altar. But He does it 
on behalf of a people, and he does this, he places himself upon the altar to be sacrificed. The Old Testament priests, they were required by law. Christ was not required by law. Christ had no obligation to do this. There was nothing that obligated Christ to offer himself other than his commitment to the Father to do it. They were required by sinfulness. Christ was not required because of his sinfulness because he had no sin. Christ is holy. Christ is undefiled. He is unstained. He is pure. He is innocent. In all regards, Christ is perfect. So Christ had no com- anything that compulsed him to do this. It was voluntary. And because God is a just God... In order for him to accept Christ's sacrifice, it had to be voluntary. Why is that? Why did it have to be a voluntary sacrifice? Would God, as a just God, allow or accept a sacrifice of an innocent man that was forced? No, because that would be an injustice. And there is no injustice in God, so Christ volunteered for it. Mark Jones, in his wonderful book, Knowing Christ, says this, The goodness and justice of God necessitated that a sinless person could not die for others unless he voluntarily offered himself up to death. Why should the judge of all the earth, who acts always justly, allow a sinless man to be killed by lawless men? End quote. Christ voluntarily left heaven. Christ, of his own volition, came and took on flesh. Christ, of his own volition, was beaten and mercilessly hung upon a cross and took sin upon himself voluntarily. We speak oftentimes of the eternal covenant of redemption. Eternal covenant of Redemption is our triune God and His promise and commitment to save a people in eternity. So we would say, because Christ is infinite, because God is eternal, the plan for salvation didn't just happen in time, but is an eternal plan. Jesus says this of giving his life in John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. Meaning that the Father and the Son had a plan of salvation. When did the plan of salvation, when was that plan, when did it take place? It took place, the plan, in Eternity, And it's realized when Christ takes on human flesh. But I think we have to see the fact that it was a voluntary thing. And that Christ himself in his humanity understood what he was going to endure. In fact, we read this in Mark chapter 10. In verse 32, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve, he began to tell them what was, going, what was, uh, what was to happen to him. 
He says this, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. You just imagine this, is that as Christ walking in his and in his person, through the streets of Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, and he sees the barbarous crucifixion, and he sees people hanging upon crosses in his own life, knowing this is the torture that the Roman system uses for executing people. And Christ looks at that cross and says, I know that's going to be what I'm going to experience. I know that that's going to be me here soon. But yet he put his face towards Jerusalem. Christ did not hesitate. Christ did not flinch. Christ willingly, as as a volunteer, went to the cross. But there's also the definitive nature is his sacrifice, you'll notice what it says there, it's a one-time sacrifice. He did this once. It's a single Greek word, but it, it, it means this. It's a single occurrence to the exclusion of another occurrence, meaning Christ offered how many sacrifices? One. One once for all. You see that in several places in Hebrews. Let me just give you a few. In Hebrews 9, 12, it says, He entered once for all into the holy places. He did this once. Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 10, And by that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now we spent a lot of time last Sunday evening looking at this word, and I won't repeat that, um, but I would encourage you to listen to last Sunday. And that is this, is that this once-for-all sacrifice actually repudiates the Roman Catholic Mass, which sacrifices and represents Christ every single Mass. It repudiates the doctrine of the gospel and the resurrection and the crucifixion and the ascension of Christ and what he does on our behalf right now. In one liturgy, it says this, may, it says this is that may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands. What we have to understand what Scripture says is that Christ completed this work once and for all. It's definitive. And if it wasn't definitive and I had to continually see Christ re-sacrificed, I've just placed myself back in the Levitical priesthood. I have no assurance of faith. I have no assurance that Christ actually accomplished something on my behalf. But rather, just to have a little bit of assurance, I've got to re-sacrifice Christ over and over and over again. We have a greater and sure hope that Christ once and for all. It's the definitive nature. And there's one final thing, and that is the nature of the sacrifice itself. 
It's not by human means. It's not by an animal. It's not by grain or incense. But it is the offering of the God-man that takes place. And Jesus said this was his, his purpose. He said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What's interesting, when you think about the priesthood just for a moment in the Old Testament, they really did not have anything of their own to give. If you, if you look at the Levites, the Levites were completely dependent on the people. They were dependent upon the people feeding them. They were depending on, dependent on the people for bringing the sacrifices. The, 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 the priesthood was fully dependent upon the people. So what they gave was given to them. So the priests didn't have anything that was their own that they gave. So well, you think about that for a second. That really puts it into perspective that we have nothing of our own to give either, do we? But Christ is not like us. Christ gives His own self to it. Christ who takes on human flesh and is dependent upon uh, nutrition, upon food, and upon water, and upon all of those things. He was, he was dependent upon vitamin D from the sun, just as you and I are. He was dependent upon His heart beating. He was dependent in, in every way in His humanity, but yet He is the one who created and sustained those very things that He was dependent upon. But they were His. They were His. Only God creates something out of nothing. Christ then gives of Himself. He takes on humanity to represent sinful humanity by taking on the flesh of sinful man. Now we know that that Jesus in His person is truly God, truly man, His deity does not for one nanosecond cease to be all that is God, infinite, eternal, immutable, holy, righteous, omnipresent. Two natures in one person. And that is the mystery of Jesus. It is beyond our comprehension. And that is the person of Christ. And it is the person of Christ that goes to the cross. It is the person of Christ that takes upon our sin. Stand in awe of Christ and what He did. Stand in awe and worship the majesty of Christ and what He did on our behalf. Not only do we see He's a sacrificial high priest, but we see He's a superior high priest. And we see this through contrast with the old covenant and the old priesthood. It says in verse 28, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is really a summary statement of all that's 
come before it. And throughout the book of Hebrews, Christ is continually compared in contrast. He was compared to angels. He was compared to Moses. He was compared to then the Levitical priesthood. And here he's compared again in, in a very specific way. And so we can, we can almost take the Levitical priesthood and put it side by side and compare Christ. That's what's taking place in this. And, and in every comparison we say, Christ is greater. Christ is superior. Christ is better. And we see that through the weakness of the Old Covenant. It says here that the law appoints priests, but the law appoints fallen sinful priests. It says that they're characterized by weakness, for the law appoints men in their weakness. And that word weakness, it's sometimes translated as sick or disabled and there's a lot of argument about well, what does it exactly mean in here in this context. But the whole point of this is that the priest that is appointed by the law is somewhat limited. He has limitations. He's not able to do all that Christ can do. He has weakness, whereas in Christ there is no weakness. Now, in one sense, we see that this was a favorable statement of the priest. We saw in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. That's speaking of the priest, meaning that they understood sin. And why did a priest understand sin? Is because they were sinners. You know, that seems to be a desirable attribute sometimes in a pastor is, well, that pastor, because he's had a bad background, or that pastor, because he, he, he came to Christ and, and, and lived a life of, of, of horrible experiences, he's someone I can relate to. And sometimes that seems to be this favorable attribute. And you understand that because it's like, oh, he understands what I'm going through. But here's the problem with it. All that it demonstrates is that he himself wasn't able to conquer those things. It's not an attribute to be super sinful. It's not one that should be desirable. Because Christ is our standard, and Christ was perfect. Christ faced temptation, but unlike you and I, when Christ faced temptation, He faced it without sin. And He never had sin from within. He never had temptation from within. If He had temptation from within, then He would have broken covetousness, which is the Tenth Commandment and the summary statement of all of the commandments. Christ never sinned from within. So while the high priesthood may have had a capacity for sympathy, they were limited in their ability to accomplish true atonement because they themselves were sinful, which speaks of their nature and their character. So if you realize this, well, the person that I'm looking to represent me is actually sinful and struggles just like I do. You have no answer for your atonement. And we have to be careful who it is that we look to for our assurance of faith. Let me just speak to the children for a second. Don't look to the faith of your grandparents. Don't look to the faith of your parents as being what gives you assurance. You look to Christ. Because it's in Christ that you will have salvation and in Christ Christ. 
alone. So what do we see? That in the word of the oath, who is appointed? In the new covenant, it appoints not weak men, but it appoints the Son. It says appoints a Son. We see that the, the previous covenant was by law versus oath. One thing we have to understand about laws in the Old Testament is a lot of them are what are known as positive law. They're a statement of law for a time period, for a duration. That's called positive law, and it can change. Let me give you an example of that, and I've given this before. Don't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. That's a positive law. Don't eat of pork. That's a positive law. It changed. It's mutable. There are immutable laws. The Ten Commandments are immutable. They will never change, for they flow out of the the very nature and character of God. So the law that appointed a weak priest was a positive law. It was mutable. But an oath by God is what? Immutable. Unchangeable. So not only were they weak men that were appointed versus a perfect son, we see that one was by a law, the law that could change, versus an oath that is unchangeable. And again, to point this out, weak versus perfected forever. They offered for their sins. Christ offered himself. What does it mean to say that he has been made perfect? One thing is that it cannot mean is it cannot mean that Christ wasn't perfect eternally as the Son of God because he was always eternally perfect. What it means in being made perfect is explained to us in chapter 5 in verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That is, speaking of in his humanity, Christ was obedient. And being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Charles Hodge in his commentary says this, He is perfect inasmuch as he is a complete Savior, or he is perfect inasmuch as he finished all he had to do and so attained the complete end of his course. So he is perfect when it says he is made perfect, that is in the accomplishment of his work. He is perfect. The law appoints men. Versus the son. The law is positive. It can change. The oath is unchangeable. Men were weak. Christ was perfected forever. What was really needed for atonement and what is really needed for atonement right now is only found in Christ. And so I want to draw our attention back to the first verse that we looked at, verse 26. It indeed was fitting that we should have such a high priest. Christ was indeed fitting. Which means he has fulfilled the need. And so, friends, all of us this morning have a need for a high priest. All of us have need for atonement. Have you recognized that need that you have for Christ? And so if you have called upon him, you have him. He has you. And if you ever doubt that, Just walk yourself through these four things as we ponder the excellency of Christ. This comes from Augustine. 
And he says four things you always must remember in a sacrifice. Augustine says this, the first is by whom it is offered. Who offered the sacrifice? The second thing is to whom is it offered? The third thing is what is offered? And for whom is it offered? If you just ask those those four questions, by whom is it offered? It's Jesus to the Father, His own life for those He calls brothers. That's the greatest assurance that we can have in answering those questions is that Christ offered Himself to the Father on our behalf and He calls us friends and He calls us brothers. You know, and this, as we think about this high priesthood, this helps us think about how we relate to Christ. I think in our culture today, we've taken those passages that says Christ is our friend, that He is our, our brother, that He ate with sinners, that He interceded on behalf of His disciples, that He's meek, that He's a bruised reed, that He shall not break, that, that He actually touched the leper. We look at those very comforting verses and we forget to reflect on the fact that He is holy, that He is unstained, that He is separated from sinners, and that He is exalted above the heavens. Can you call Christ friend? Yes, if if Christ has died for you, then He calls you friend. Can I call Christ my elder brother? If Christ has died for you, yes, you can call Him. But we can't forget in that that He is holy God. He's not a friend that we just punch in the arm. He's not a friend that we can can sin against. He's Lord of heaven and earth. And He will judge. And either judgment has taken place in the cross, or we will face that judgment for all of eternity where the Lamb Himself will pour out wrath upon His people daily they are before the Lamb in His wrath. But if you've called upon Christ, then I want you to hear these words. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us hold fast to the confession. Let us hold fast to Christ. And let us draw close to Him and to His throne of mercy and grace. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ, the great foundation of our faith, We thank you that we are saved by faith, not by our works, by your grace. And as we're reminded of the great work of Christ upon the cross, we're reminded of his great work in heaven on our behalf even now. We are thankful for the comfort and the assurance that this gives us. Father, if any are struggling, may they know their sins are forgiven, their sins are wiped away that there's a definitive salvation by our great Savior. If there are any that do not know Christ, I pray, Father, 
that conviction of their sin and the weight of sin will, will come crushing down upon them so that they will turn to our merciful high priest where they will receive forgiveness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.